Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Shane Kowalski. Shane is the CEO and co-founder of Mystery, a managed marketplace of surprise and delight. In just over two years, Mystery has pivoted and found product market fit three times. Today, Mystery focuses on bringing surprise and delight to businesses navigating remote and hybrid workforces with tech-first team engagement tools. Shane previously worked for Porch, Convoy, and ran a number of his own businesses and side hustles. He's passionate about pesto, shared experiences, and data-driven results. So we're going to start with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Love it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Are you ocean or pool? Ooh, ocean, for sure. Best movie you have ever seen? Oh, man. Catch me if you can. Oh. Is that Leo DiCaprio? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Country that you most want to visit? Oof, right now, I'd say Colombia. I've actually had three trips replanned and planned throughout COVID yeah. <laughs> trying to go there. But uh, it, yeah, yeah. Going hard to, to be there and they're, they're going through a tough time right now. So it's not the best time to visit. Yeah. Um, okay. What is a habit that you are trying to break? Ooh, habit I'm trying to break. Uh, probably coffee addiction, uh, but I would say haphazardly trying to break. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up to probably... 16 shots of espresso a day, which is oh my gosh, that's the most I've ever heard. (laughs) What Shane, we got to get a handle on this. Yeah, so I went off of it maybe four months ago and I'm kind of easing back in, but I had a raging headache for like three days when I went off. So maybe you just start to go half decaf for a little while, ease out by fall, you'll be good to go. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's so much of it is mental too, because it, it's totally. fine. I'll wake up and I'll feel fine in the morning and then I'll slowly get a little headache that comes in. And then it's not even after I have my first cup of coffee, it's my first sip of coffee. Oh, and all of a yeah. sudden I feel better. Oh, totally. is, I don't think that's mental. That's real. Ca- caffeine's a drug. So that's real. Okay. What are three words that describe you as a leader? Ooh, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'd say optimistic. Um, as a leader, optimistic, data-driven, and hopefully empathetic. Nice. Those are good ones. Um, first, well, this is funny. After our last conversation, or just two seconds ago, I'm going to ask you, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? <laughs> first thing I do when I wake up uh, usually is get a cup of coffee. Yeah, me too. Uh, but I've actually recently, and through COVID actually, tried to get a lot more intentional about just morning time. And like waking up at a specific time, making sure you meditate in the morning, trying to work out. I find I go on like habits where for a month I'll do it great. And then I fall off of it for a month. What is the first concert that you ever attended? Ooh, it was uh, first, I think technically it was Band of Horses, but I I think I fell asleep because I was (laughs) was pretty young at the time. Uh, I'd say the first memorable concert that I went to was Big the Giant in Austin, Texas. Nice. And uh, is there an app that you can't live without? Ooh, app I can't live without. I have a favorite app uh, that I think is just like the most clever and creative use that just magical technology. Uh, I'll talk about that one. Uh, It's called Be My Eyes. Have you heard of that one? No, but I got to download it. This is why I do the podcast so I can get little nuggets for me. Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's like one of the most beautiful expressions of like technology that creates magic. And it's uh, essentially it's for blind people who can call and essentially they have a supply side of, you know, people that are blind, or I guess demand is people that are blind. uh, blind, And then they have hundreds of thousands of people that will just answer FaceTimes from blind people who are saying like, what am I looking at? Which outfit is green? That's awesome. So tell me all about you. You grew up in Seattle in this area, right? Yeah. I grew up in Issaquah, Sammamish area. Yeah. And tell me about your childhood. Were you like into school, sports, music? 
Uh, yeah, not the best student, I'd say, ever. Um, it was one of those very casual where my sister was the, the student in the uh, academic growing up, uh, like valedictorian all the way through. There's even a funny story about me uh, getting put into a special education class in fifth grade uh, because I got the same teacher as my sister in fourth grade. And I was <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah, uh, I'd say no, I was more of social, always outdoors, never needed to be entertained, could always find entertainment for myself uh, type of childhood, but yeah. really, really good childhood. Absolutely no complaints. And you're, so you just have the one sister? Just one sister, yeah. I think it would be yeah. intimidating to have your older sister be the valedictorian. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's uh, even just my relationship with my sibling. I think it's a pretty common uh, thing that happens. But like growing up, my sister and I hated each other, never got along all the way through like middle school, early high school. Then as soon as college started, we started becoming really good friends. And now like she's one of my best friends and I talk oh. with her pretty much every day. Oh, uh, but it's I one of those that. things where we're best friends when she lives in San Francisco. We're best friends when we're apart. And like we can spend a couple of days together, but uh, any more than that, all we the start old playing. dynamics come back. And so, was this teacher the one who told you like maybe you needed special education? Someone that you would call was an influence? Yeah, I, I don't think it was a direct influence. I might have just been too young. Uh, I, I have like a very specific memory of you know walking in first day of fifth grade, looking around, and like not in like a bad way by any means, but I was like oh, I shouldn't be in this class. Yeah. And I remember I walked home, uh, like all the way home and passed my mom who's mowing the lawn. She was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm never going back. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a good um, thing it didn't derail you because it's, it's so interesting to hear these stories and sometimes can be just infuriating when you hear a teacher place doubt into somebody's yeah. mind versus kind of well, getting beneath them. And it's funny how serendipity comes into life in so many ways because the, the teacher that picked me up uh, fifth grade, basically the district actually like argued to have me stay in that class and my parents did not want me to stay in that class and when they needed a teacher it'll basically say like hey i'll i'll take this student we'll, we'll do it and it was this uh this teacher named mrs barquest um and she was my i think my favorite teacher that i ever had probably because of that honestly uh but i think just the power of serendipity in the world is uh once we started mystery and i'm, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later but it was a, a date night out you don't have to plan to start and uh, just out of happenstance, I'm sitting in the office uh, and Emma on my team came over to me and she's like, do you know Mrs. Barquest? And I was like, oh, oh. And I'm like, what? are you sure? She said she was your like teacher. And I was like, it clearly, I was like, what? Oh my God. And it turned out she ran a uh, January surprise date nights Facebook group. Oh, that's awesome. So um, it sounds like you were social. You were kind of met into school. Did you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up and around like fifth grade, middle school? Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, the phrase I always said was, I, when I grow up, I want to be a kid, uh, which I think uh, now, that, now that I'm a little bit older, I was like, wow, that's pretty insightful. Uh, but uh, I think generally speaking, I, I knew for, for a long time, I knew I always wanted to start a business. When I was in you know middle school, elementary school, I was doing the lawn care startup and the pressure washing and yeah. anything and everything. I think there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, fun stories in college that I did to try and make some money and try and you know pay for college, everything like that. Um, but I think also influenced uh, both my grandparents uh, on both sides are both entrepreneurs. Oh, wow. Uh, and what about, what about your parents? Uh, neither of my parents were actually. Oh, now, my mom, now my mom runs my uh, grandpa's company. Um, but I uh, had just an early insight that like, that's something people can do. Yeah. Uh, and the permission was always there to kind, kind of try it more or less. Right. And so, um, yeah. And, and you studied entrepreneurship in college at Gonzaga, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I started actually computer science uh, and learned pretty quickly. I was not a very great engineer. <laughs> uh, so moved to entrepreneurship and I think just even in college, uh, did all sorts of stuff just kind of trying to learn how what it's like to build something from scratch Yeah. Um, and try and do anything. I think the most memorable story that I'd share is uh, for a long time, I was a uh, street salesman of toys. Uh, so like, I don't know if you've ever seen those flare copters, things that go up in the sky real high and come down really slow. Oh, no way. Yes. At like yeah. Seattle Center and like, you know, outdoor kind of uh, events. I've seen people yeah. selling that type of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. So I saw those uh, when it was when my sister was studying abroad in Prague. And uh, I got to go visit her for a couple of weeks. And I remember I like bought one of those things. And like, I remember looking at it and being like, why did I spend $5? And then I, uh, you know, looked it up on Alibaba and found that you could buy them for literally two pennies. 
Uh, wow. So right then and there, I bought like 10,000 of them and uh, oh, no did way. that every summer during college. Uh, and it's a, it's a 99% margin, but uh, yes, I think- You have to have like a high margin business. So you made some yeah. serious dough. Did you send them all, did you sell them all through? Yeah. Oh yeah. Sold those all through and ordered more and more and more. Uh, I mean, did that a lot. I Maybe think I'll tell the, my son. I've got a, I've got a little baby entrepreneur sophomore in high school. Uh, yeah, I can give him the full playbook. It's uh, it's one of the more humbling things in the world to go out into a park and start selling toys. Yes. Uh, but uh, it, I mean, so that was awesome. one of the best lessons I had. Yeah, it was awesome. So how'd you choose Gonzaga? Is it, was that your top choice? So it's actually interesting you bring that up. I didn't start at Gonzaga. Uh, oh, I started okay. at ECU down in Texas, um, which, you know, talking about sibling dynamics, it was just TCU was the nicest school that I got into <laughs> from the ends of which it looked the best and it was the best programs, uh, theoretically. Uh, but I got there and I think, you know, TCU is in Fort Worth, Texas, which might just be the most Texan part of Texas. Yes. Uh, and there's just a, a quite a bit of privilege in, in that area. And I think just me and the people of Fort Worth didn't get along too well. Yeah. Uh, and I was working a lot. Well, I'm different than Seattle because there's privilege here, but it's like understated privilege. And there it's like the flashier, the more. The biggest it can be, right? Yeah. Bigger so, the better. Um, it, in kind of a traditional, I'd say, me fashion, uh, I was, you know, I was going through that. It was a year and a half in. I was like, you know, slogging through it. It was fine. But uh, I was in Spokane because I've got a bunch of family there. I was in Spokane over a holiday break, and uh, I remembered I like we drove by my mom and I drove by Gonzaga, and I was like, God, like maybe I can like transfer. Like, what would that look like? And my mom was like, All right, well, let, let's just go. Let's go talk to admissions. Let's see. And it was like the last day before the holiday that they shut down, and uh, you know, I went in, and like at that point, I had an oak. I think I had like a three point zero exactly. So I was like, There's no way I'll be like my GPA is not that good. All that stuff. And uh, I remember they were like, well, yeah, like you could start next semester. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like thinking, okay, so like next year, they're like, no, 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 like 12 days. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So, so you I, changed right I then and the there. I had paperwork right there, flew to Texas, grabbed all my shit and came back. Oh, that's uh, great. And got to go home to the family saying, hey, I live here now, <laughs> which was kind of fun. Yeah, in Spokaloo. So what was your first job out of school? Like first your actual real school, job? Uh, I guess it would kind of a difference between porch, either porch or convoy. Uh, I'd say I was working at porch kind of during school and then a little bit of time off school at porch because I yeah. really fell in love with startups there. Uh, but I'd say my first real kind of out of school job was at convoy. Yeah. So yeah. interesting because a lot of people feel, I mean, there's, there's every story under the sun from the person starting a company right out of school with no kind of real operational experience. Um, you became kind of a product guy. Yeah, I mean, I did a little bit of everything. I think that was an interesting learning for me, just even going to Convoy and like trying to find that out because you know, it's a rocket time, ship. I mean, Convoy, yeah. And everything is luck. Everything is just circumstance and serendipity. But uh, at the time, I really wanted to work at a startup. I worked at Porch for you know about a year, kind of actually full time while at school, a whole thing there, and loved startups. Loved everything about that experience. And I really wanted to work at a different startup, yeah. uh, but like in Seattle at the time, it was like enterprise SaaS or real estate. <laughs> and like, that's what you could do if you totally. wanted to work at a startup. Uh, so I'd, I'd actually kind of given up on it, on it, interestingly enough. I was uh, really going deep with BCG and a couple of consulting firms. Oh, and interesting. Thinking like, oh, I'll go build my toolkit, that whole story. Uh, and I was, it, I ended up reaching out to Convoy because literally I was in like an entrepreneurship night class. It was like 8 p.m. and you know, wasn't paying attention. And I was reading some article that was like the recent, like Seattle times which was interesting in and of itself. Cause the times doesn't actually post about startups that much. So it was like a list of startups that had gotten funding recently. And combo was like, like the bottom of the list. And, and this is the funny moment that I'll share, which was like, you know, I didn't want to work in enterprise SaaS or real estate. So I thought it was like hilarious that I could work in trucking. And I oh, yeah. But I sent Dan an email, just cold email them right from that class. And he got back you know, to his credit, literally I think within two minutes, yeah. Uh, saying like, hey, like, sounds great. Like, here, passing you off to somebody to chat. I had an interview at 7 a.m. the next morning. Uh, and then they were like, great, can you come in like later this afternoon by chance? And I was like, yeah, I'm in Seattle. That sounds great. Uh, got in the car, drove to Seattle and went and interviewed. Uh, and Convoy just like, I think more than anything else, like the, the vision was just so clear. Uh, you know, the pitch that won me over at Convoy was like, look around and you're in this room and like you can do it right now. Like every single thing you see was on a truck seven or eight times, if not more. Yeah. Well, and, the total addressable market is not something you can even start to mess with. And it's, exactly. a, it's one of those companies that was um, an industry 
innovator because it's an overlooked area. Like truckers aren't thinking about technology solutions and VCs aren't really thinking about, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, a true pleasure and ride to be able to do what I got to do yeah. at Convoy. I mean, once I got the offer, the funny thing is, and, and I think I, I tell a lot of people right out of school this same advice, which is like, if you want to work at a startup, startup salaries are not what you can get at Amazon or any of the big companies. I took a 30% or sorry, a 70% pay cut to work at Convoy compared to my next best offer. Yeah, but talk about uh, it's like I, a total MBA. You're drinking from the fire hose. Oh, it's just like, yeah. it's on. I mean, just anything and everything. I got, I started in my scope was like, bring on supply, like figure out how to talk to carriers, uh, which meant I was cold calling truckers and having them download the first app of their life, uh, which was just as much fun and romantic as it sounds. Yeah. And then you got to figure out how to tell them how to do that. <laughs> Yeah, I can. I I could be an Apple Store genius. I am so good at walking people through how to download an app. Yeah, and who, who was your boss there? Not necessarily by name, but like, what was your boss? Oh, I, I haven't He's actually uh, a founder himself now. It was uh, Austin Watkins to start. He started a company called Cloud Paper here in Seattle. Oh, okay, uh, I don't know that. One of my one of my best friends now. Um, but yeah, they're uh, bamboo toilet paper. Austin and I joke that uh, it was pretty funny because we both left Convoy and started companies. He picked uh, toilet paper. I picked a date night out, um, <laughs> one of which was much better positioned for COVID than the other. <laughs> so funny. I never thought of that. And yeah. so what was the process like to leave? How did you get the courage to do it? And, um, you know, how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, I think, you know, the for me at any startup, like when you when you join, especially early stage, you get to just such like, like, yeah. like you mentioned, massive scope. Like yeah. there was literally like this huge array of responsibility. And, you know, I got the pleasure. And for me, like, I, I think understanding what you're really good at early in life, I think is helpful. And for me, I, I knew like resourcefulness was kind of the, the end of, you know, a superpower that I had connecting dots between things. So I really wanted to just learn every role. Uh, I worked at, I think, eight different jobs while I was at Convoy, everything from, you know, cold calling carriers to marketing, to growth, to program management, to data science, to shipping code for wow. a little bit, to wow. product management in the end. I just wanted to see every function of how a marketplace was built. But, you know, I think, you know, by the end, uh, you know, it had kind of turned more, even Convoy, you know, called a startup. It, I think it definitely has a, a lot of startup uh, mentality about how they approach problems. But at the time, it was still a big company. You know, it was a thousand people by the time I was ready to leave. Um, and uh, I think the scope of things you get to work on, you know, the impact may be much, much higher, right? You're instead of building one thing for 10 carriers, it was building a small feature for, you know, tens of thousands of people, even mm. millions. Um, but like the scope just got smaller and smaller. The, the moment I actually realized I needed to do something else, there was like this specific moment in my mind where I was like, oh God, I got to go go find a smaller problem yeah. for a smaller company was uh, we had just hired this guy from Groupon. And I was like, oh, would you do a Groupon? He was like, oh yeah, you know the uh, the Groupon app? I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, you know the uh, search bar on the Groupon app? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's like, you know, the recommendations below the search bar on the Groupon app? I was like, yeah, yeah. It's like, I sorted those. It's like, whoa. Yeah, was like, yeah, I was like, I've got to do something else. Yeah, totally. So you came up with, you knew, just knew that you wanted to leave and then came up with the idea or the idea came and that was your. Yeah. So I think it started with, hey, I knew I wanted to leave. I knew I wanted to do something on my own. It felt like the right time that I had amassed enough skills to kind of give it a go and try it out. Uh, there was no you know, real, I think, and, and I think in any time you start a company, you kind of got to be willing to just take a leap of faith. There's a lot of it now that I think back to it, it was like, well, that was pretty interesting. I didn't have any of that figured out when I started. Yeah. Uh, but then I think I you know, went down a pretty generic framework of just trying to say like, well, what, what would I want to work on for a long time? And I think there's a lot of pattern matching, you know, frankly, bullshit that exists in startups and venture and everything like that. One of which was like, you know, build something for yourself that you would want to do. Uh, and I think that one's actually pretty important. And I learned why yeah. that was important pretty quickly because the, the first idea I tried to start was uh, billboards on the sides of truck marketplace. And it was actually going pretty well, but like I woke up and was like, why am I building another trucking business? Yeah. Uh, like so much of me had like had my experience in trucking. I think there's a lot of amazing things, but there's a lot of things that are hard to get personally motivated in about trucking, um, at least for me personally. Yeah. So and you do I have a co-founder. Did you guys start this, start both these companies together or these ideas together? Or did you bring yeah, them on after? Just a, a group of us that was trying to create side projects at the time, um, working on like, hey, what would be a fun idea of something to do? Um, and then I think the other end is like, I wanted to have, you know, a really thesis driven understanding of like what the law, like whatever it was, what was like 
the why now of whatever I was going to build. Um, I knew I wanted to build a marketplace business just because I had spent so much time in marketplace businesses at Porch and Convoy. And I really think marketplace businesses are fascinating. Uh, the core insight that we wanted to build something around was this idea that most open marketplaces today uh, are built on the backs of supply, not supply not getting paid enough, essentially. And I think the open marketplace model has a, has a churn problem that I think will become more evident in the, in the coming years, but you're already seeing it. Mm. And I wanted to think, is there a way that we can create more value for supply? Uh, and the model that I think was the most interesting for, uh, for me was Stitch Fix, which was this model where they picked exactly what you were going to get, when you got it and how you got it. And they you know, used data science, collaborative filtering to kind of pick and match that. Uh, but that was kind of the core insight. Can I bring a marketplace pick model, which I thought created more value for supply to a new market? Mm. Uh, and that pairing that with the, hey, build something for yourself. Uh, it sounds a little cheesy or corny, but this was, oh, geez, like three summers ago. Uh, and I was taking a, a weekend trip pretty much every weekend with some friends uh, where it was a first flight out. So you go to the airport and just, you know, ask for the first flight out wherever oh, it's going. Oh, seriously? Um, yeah, because it, it's a really, really fun, like for me, it's like my style of travel. Like I'm the person that if a bartender asks me what to order, I say like, whatever you feel like, because I think that, that end of yeah. which, you know, makes sense that we've built My husband's the same way or just like go to sushi and be like, give me the special, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's the best way to enjoy most things. But uh, we did that with a bunch of friends. Uh, and, you know, the learning there is like the worse the place sounds, the better it ends up being. <laughs> Albuquerque, New Mexico. Incredible. Um, and, you know, we did a bunch of those. We had a ton of fun with that. And uh, that was the first kind of side project idea that we had that, you know, blended this idea that we could match people with things and we get to pick exactly where they went, how, how it happened. And we, you know, we bought the domain name firstflightout.app because .app tildes were really popular at the time. But uh, that was going to be the experience where you'd, you know, sign up, you'd tell us about yourself. Uh, you'd get a packing list with, you know, some red herrings in there. You know, like That's so cool. I mean, I know you're not doing it anymore, but I, I want that. Yeah. And then you get, you know, ride to the airport, you get, you geofence in and get your mobile boarding pass. And then your whole weekend would be booked. Airbnb experiences, uh, nights out. And we, we actually did them for friends and family. Uh, we did a bunch of them. Uh, and and the learning was like, oh my God, like, well, wow, this is a lot of work. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, like, the margins on that are not so high. It was just insane. And the, even the principal agency of buying flights is like really, really hard. So yeah. uh, we kind of took that idea of magical weekend and, and shrunk it down to a magical night out. And that's where mystery started, where it was a similar idea where, like, come to our website, tell us what you like and don't like. And we'll plan an entire night out, two to four stops. And the catch was you wouldn't know where you were going until you got there. Uh, so to the user, it was like a date night you didn't have to plan, which is super valuable. Yeah. And like that was a really easy fit to go into. On the supply side, you know, it was a business where we got to pick when, where, and how people spent their money. Yeah. You know, physically move people throughout the city. Uh, and when you start digging into any marketplace, I think you can learn a lot just like really learning about the businesses that you're working with. Uh, I think understanding underlying supply businesses is like the key to any marketplace, but like to the level of like understanding their profit and loss. Uh, and I can talk through a bunch of really fun examples there, but I'll talk about one, which is imagine you're like a sailing instructor and that's what you do. You do a sailing experience. Well, yeah, they have Airbnb experiences, they have Groupon, they have Eventbrite, they have all these things that they can sell their experience on. But the problem that we kept hearing when we went and tried these was like, yeah, like those are all great and like they're fine, but like, man, I'm sick of being a third wheel. We're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, like these dates sign up and then like I'm just sitting there like in the background and they don't want to talk to me because they're on a date. Uh, and the problem with these marketplaces that exist that existed was that, you know, if two people booked versus 10 who could book that experience, they were going to go sailing. They were going to, you know, set up the boat, go on the experience, take down the boat afterwards. Three hours of time and like I'm doing this for money. Most of these people are, are creators, right? And they're trying to share their passion with other people. But like I need to make at least 50 bucks an hour or so at least 15 dollars yeah. an hour. So 15 minimum wage, but what yeah. I do, you know, I have to price my experience pretty high because if two people book, it has to work. So like that sailing experience, uh, the one that I'm talking about is actually this guy named Rusty who has the winter sailing experience. It's really, really awesome. You get like this fur coat. It's a really great experience. Uh, but uh, he priced it at like 85 bucks a head, which what does that do? Now it's too expensive and only two people are going to sign up. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so there's a really interesting yield efficiency problem to solve. Uh, and that is what, you know, we had enough uh, traction with that. We launched that to friends and family. And I take that idea more than any of the others we had worked on. You could just tell it was getting shared to friends and friends of friends yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, we had over 200 people sign up just for the beta alone. Um, and uh, then we got super lucky early on, actually. The, the thing that 
you know, it's actually interesting to think if it hadn't happened, would we have done it? I don't know if the answer is yes, but we, uh, we had a friend whose uh, girlfriend that he went on the date with happened to be a writer for The Stranger. Uh, and she reached out and said, like, hey, like, I would love to write an article about you. And I think at the time we were like, hey, let's keep learning and seeing if this is good enough. Right. And you don't but want any competitors enough. to be tipped off either. You got to stay on the down low. Yeah. But I think for, for us, the idea that we were going to get an article was like enough for at least me to say, all right, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to go for this. We're going to try this full time, uh, which in hindsight, like I, I think a lot of founders are curious, they're like, hey, should I leave before I get funding or how should I think about that? I think I made that decision pretty haphazardly. I think I just, you know, in, in anything in life, I think it's important to bet on yourself. And I think totally. that was me betting on myself. Uh, but we left, we had that stranger article go out just talking about the experience um, and the, the crazy launch story that I'll tell and then I'll <laughs> let you kind of drive the conversation. No, no, I love it. I'm learning. This is awesome. The, uh, we had a bunch of people sign up and actually I was still at Convoy when the stranger article came out, which if I can give any advice to founders starting a company, don't launch your company while you have another job. Bad call. <laughs> Bad call in every way, shape, and form. I think my name's actually at the top of the moonlighting policy that Convoy has now. Um, but uh, we launched. We had over like thousands of people sign up on one day, which was like this amazing thing to see everything coming through. Uh, and we had over 100 dates signed up for uh, the first weekend of Valentine's Day and the second weekend after. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, and so I went into... What was the date for Valentine's Day? Uh, so it was, we had a bunch of different dates that we had planned for Valentine's Day. People were signing up and, you know, filling out a preference survey. And then we were planning dates for them on Valentine's Day. That's awesome. Uh, and so I, one, we didn't expect this many dates at all. <laughs> this was in like January. So I went into like full planning mode where like I didn't eat, I didn't sleep. All I did was plan dates. I called every restaurant in Seattle, tried to get as many reservations as I could in a month when Valentine's Day is there, which was hard. I uh, had to go all the way into my personal savings to buy these experiences and put oh. holes on everything. And then, I don't know if you remember this, this is 2019, uh, Snowpocalypse came. I do and, remember. Uh, canceled all of them. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I don't remember it happening over Valentine's Day, but I guess it was. Yeah, I have this stark memory where, like, all of the, I'm like a you know, weatherman at this point, checking the weather every single day. And I remember finally coming to the realization that these are going to get canceled the first weekend of our launch. And, like, oh, I remember no. my mom being like, you left Convoy for that? Like, <laughs> it feels like maybe you should yeah. have. But uh, I remember, and then the next moment was like, oh, geez, I didn't check the cancellation policy on any of these. And oh. I had just put my life savings into these reservations. Oh, crap. So it uh, turns out, like, I ended up losing a lot of that in those first, in that first weekend. None of that, uh, not, was able to get none of the money back. Uh, luckily, everyone signed up again. Um, and at that point, you know, another kind of, Again, serendipitous conversation. My co-founder at the time had gotten intro to Aviel from Founders Co-op, um, and he actually thought that Aviel was a uh, engineer, ah. not an investor. So he got to the call and he was like, "Oh, like I guess I'm talking to an engineer. Like, why not? Let's give it a go." Uh, and you know, I knew nothing about fundraising. Not, I mean, I knew what Convoy had been through, which was like fundraising must be like hard, but like, wow, like if you do it right, like it's really easy because the Convoy had the best investors in the world. Beyond. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyways, like that meeting, like I found out that he was an investor in that meeting. And then, and then how stupid am I? I'm like, I, we look at their portfolio and we're like, oh, they only do B2B. Like, there's no way they'll take it. To, let's use this as practice. Uh, and so we went and pitched Aviel and Chris. And, uh, you know, again, I still remember the exact moment that they like offered us the first term sheet. And it was like, oh my God, like, this is real. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to get my savings back. This is amazing. Like all those, all those different things coming together. Yeah. Um, so they yeah, did. Your, they did your seed round. They did our seed round. And have you and, raised uh, an A? Uh, so we haven't raised an A. We've had a few rounds in between. Yeah. Um, the just you know the story of going through any kind of fundraising. So we raised that money in uh, got May of 2019. Uh, that was about a million. We went through the whole process of figuring out angel investing and how to how to get them interested and that whole process. Uh, we raised that money. We were able to uh, start the team and to kind of just because there's so much more that we're doing now. But uh, to fast forward, you know, February of 2020, everything was like looking great. <laughs> like we had, yeah. uh, we had grown right, right before COVID. But real quick, what was the business model when you were doing the dates? Yeah. Like, so how'd we you make money? A, we charged a $20 planning fee, uh, similar to Stitch Fix. And then uh, our economics were essentially pinned on making suppliers more money. So if a supplier, uh, the average supplier is a utilization of about 20% for activities meaning like of their time, 20% of their yield comes in. 
So the question was like, can we improve that yield to 80% to 60%, anything there, and then we'll split the difference, mm. which in practice means, hey, we're only going to book you if we send you 10 people, eight people, six people, and a price point that was $80 comes down to you know 30 at, 10, at, uh, 30 at 60 people, or six people, sorry, 30 at six people, uh, 25 at eight people, and 20 at 10 people, and mm. the supplier's still making more money. Awesome. Okay, so yeah. here we are. It's February 2020. And nobody's going out on dates. Restaurants are going out of business. Well, so no, this is February 2020. Like COVID didn't hit till early March. Oh, well, yeah, it was uh, early February. March, actually. We're, we're, yeah. yeah, it was early March. Because February, I mean, everything was great. We were actually out raising our A. We had, uh, you know, more or less ready to close. Like things were looking really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing close to 500 mysteries a month here in just Seattle alone. We'd grown wow. almost entirely organically. We had scaled the product from an automation perspective. Uh, and iterated on so many things. It was like really, really great product and uh, I think had a ton of legs. Um, and then, you know, COVID comes. Uh, we go from a great looking product to illegal in a matter of like a week. Uh, and I think, you know, the hard thing there is like, one, we were just about ready to raise money. Uh, so in many cases, we could have just been dead in the water. I think if we if we had picked our early investors in a worse manner than we did, I think we would be. We wouldn't be around today. Yeah. Uh, but testament to you know founders co-op Chris Naviel, and and they are just the highest integrity people I've yeah. ever worked with, ever met. Uh, they backed us sight unseen again. Uh, they doubled down on us right then when we had no prospect, no idea how long COVID was going to last. I mean, nothing, right? Um, and so for us, I think you know, like everybody else, you know, we had gotten enough money to keep going because i think like any good uh any good uh, startup you know you're increasing burn until you raise your money because you want to try and build a team and build momentum so right at the end is when you're like your burn is the highest in some cases depending on your model uh but we were you know in a place where finally okay we have a, at least some more time to figure this out uh and that was when you know covid was going to be a month-long thing two yeah, months exactly like, you know it it took a lot, a lot of people a long time to pivot uh when covid came for us it was like dead obvious. It was like, no one's going to go on a mystery night yeah. out. So what was, what was the pivot exactly? So the first pivot was like, all right, this is going to be around a few months. We had a couple goals. Uh, first and foremost is we had hundreds of these small businesses in Seattle that we worked with that we didn't want to go out of business because we wanted to go back to a night out business down the line, right? Uh, so we wanted to save them and figure out how to create value. And like the ideas there were like, oh, uh, restaurant gift cards or like whatever you could do. And like, that was fine. Like, you know, you'd be supporting the restaurant, but we wanted to find a way to actually like create some value on demand as well. Uh, so we kept it pretty simple. We kept the same kind of value prop, which was instead of a date night out, you don't have to plan. It was a date night in, you don't have to plan. Um, and, uh, you know, as a box of activities, local goods and a hot meal delivered to your doorstep. We went from zero to launch on that in seven days. Oh my uh, gosh. Which I talk about was, not eating, not sleeping. Oh man, that was a that was one of the hardest months I think I will ever experience, and I'll tell you why. Is our quality bar on the first weekend that we launched was awful, <laughs> and I mean, we were way off. Uh, we 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 did a great job getting momentum behind it. We got local press, we got a bunch of stuff. We had hundreds of signups that uh, first weekend, and uh, you know, coincidentally, all of my uh, mentors in Seattle, everyone who I really respect you know, bought one. They were like, all right, we're going to support mystery. This is going to be great. And uh, I, so, oh God, it was like this exact moment when we, uh, we, I, we got all the boxes and materials together. We didn't know how to price this thing at all. We were like, well, it'd be good if there were like three price points. And we were just guessing, right? We, I drove the U-line in Olympia to pick up the boxes and they didn't fit in my Jeep. So I ended up strapping them to the top. <laughs> and tarp on the- I love these startup stories. These startup stories are so awesome. And then we get to the restaurant that was going to be doing the meals for that night. And, uh, and oh, just out of sheer luck or bad luck, all of like, I'm not even kidding. All of my mentors, like really amazing people in Seattle uh, had been on that Saturday night is when they planned it. And we, we get to the restaurant and the restaurant accidentally uh, miscalculated how many meals we needed by half. So we had half the meals for over a hundred people. Uh, to deliver for their date night in, right? And and there's no other option because everyone's got food restrictions. Everyone's got problems. It's four o'clock. And like, we've got all the boxes there. Everything's there. And, you know, my whole team is out delivering boxes, right? Because we didn't figure out Postmates or anything at that point. Uh, And I have this moment in uh, just another moment in time. It's just so funny when you look back, you have like these exacts. I can picture myself there 
where uh, we were texting people before saying like, hey, as a heads up, you, like the meals are happy. You're going to be comped for it. Here's a DoorDash code. We like try yeah. to move. Forward. Just be like, tell, tell your wife, she's tell your girlfriend, she's not going to be eating tonight. I mean, it was so, and then like the meat was like undercooked too. It was like just everything. Oh that could no. Out. I guess you're not going to be giving much business to this restaurant. Yeah. And I remember literally getting out of doing one of the deliveries. I'd gotten out of the car and it was raining and I had this box and we had wine added on. So I had a bottle of wine in the box and the meal. And I get this call from the person who I'm about to deliver it from being like, Hey, we don't want it if the food's not going to be there. And I was like, look, man, I'm already here. Like, let me just drop off the box. We won't charge you. Let me just drop off the box. And then as I'm walking up the stairs, it's raining. I slip. I drop the wine. What? It shatters. The food goes everywhere. And I land right on the box. <laughs> so this, like, you can't write this box. stuff. You got to write a little book on this. Literally as bad as it can get. I mean, like we, that first weekend, we, we had, you know, up until that point had the luxury of we had very few bad reviews for mystery. I mean, we had an NPS before of like 90. We'd been really, really crushing. Did this put, person write a bad review? Oh, everyone. That weekend. We had the most bad feedback we'd ever gotten. I was getting these long, detailed emails from you know, people that I really respect. And like, in hindsight, it's one of those things that, you know, I think is honestly just like maturity of like being able to handle those situations. Did you feel good about how you handled it? I don't No, I've actually apologized to a lot of people that, since then because I got all this feedback, really thoughtful, very helpful feedback. And I just couldn't let myself digest it and respond to it. I, I got it. And I was like, it was all so negative. Well, you were probably it. just in like fight or flight and probably just decided to choose flight. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was just like, yeah. oh my God, like this is uh, just, it was so hard getting yeah. all that motivating the team and keeping everyone there. It was just like, I needed to just press through it and get yeah. it to a point where it was good first, and then I could go back. Yeah. So where are you uh, now with the business? What it, where have you pivoted to? Yeah. So, I mean, even for that night in business, you know, I think we went from that first weekend, we had like maybe a 10% satisfaction ratio. <laughs> uh, we iterated and iterated and iterated on night in for, you know, the better part of three months. Uh, we were able to put close to half a million dollars back into small businesses in Seattle, which was oh, that's great. one of the more meaningful things. Yeah, that, that alone is meaning, so meaningful. Yeah, and actually, as it relates to even just like the name of this podcast, like changed my opinion on like how to build, like what, what was meaningful work to me. And I'm, I'm happy to go deeper on that. Um, but we iterated on that product to the point where like people really loved it and it was great. And people were buying it again and doing it again. Um, but, uh, you know, three months in, it was like, okay, well, COVID's going to be here a little bit longer. Uh, and uh you know, something I think the team's really good at now is to, you know, constantly question assumptions like, hey, if, why are we building this and what are we doing it for? And we were you know, lucky enough to be you know, in that summer where we could have just kept going with Night In uh, indefinitely. But because it, it was working, people liked it and we were launching in different cities, the whole, whole thing. But uh, you know, we took a moment to like, what are we building? Like, is this are we still waiting on Night Out to come back? Uh, is that even a luxury we have? Uh, and the reality was no, one. And then the second one was like, is this a business that we're the right people to build? But uh, it, we just couldn't iterate fast enough, number one. And two, it's just like not a compelling business to build. Uh, subscription boxes, you know, I think for other people is an excellent and amazing value prop. But for us, it was like, what are we doing? Like, why are we right. doing this? And I think right, right, right. At that point, you know, we knew we were really good at two things. Uh, and those two things were... On one end, basically advanced logistics and automation, something that felt bespoke, white glove, looked more like a tech business. And we, we learned those skill sets from Convoy, other marketplaces and taking them here. And then the other end, we had learned everything we had possibly, like just so much and the, the world here is insanely huge of like, what does experience design mean? Uh, what does a great experience mean for people? How do you set expectations? What's the psychology behind them? How do you think about hospitality? Hospitality is truly what drives, I think, everything in the world, but especially in experiences. Uh, and we learned like these really amazing insights, uh, the biggest one being that the, the delta between what people think they enjoy and what they actually enjoy is just massive. Oh, interesting. People are terrible at picking experiences for themselves. Interesting. I wouldn't have life. thought that. Yeah. I mean, and I'm happy to, like, the example that I'll give is actually one that we tested, which was uh, we had a date night in Seattle called the Salsa and Salsa Date. Pretty cheesy, but uh, the experience is like... I like it. Like, I like salsa and salsa. You make salsa okay. and then have a meal and then you'd go salsa dancing, <laughs> right? Super fun experience. But uh, With like an instructor is, or just on your own? With an instructor on both ends, yeah. Um, so that was kind of the date night where you'd go and make salsa and then you'd go to Salsa Con Toto in Fremont and do a salsa class. Um, 
And the funny thing is that we had, we said, Hey, for a hundred dates for 50 of them, we're going to have people not know what they're doing until they get there, which is kind of the traditional mystery model. You tell them what to wear at least. So they're not wearing. We, like- yeah, yeah. We, we tell them what to wear when they're going to eat. Cause people get hangry close to choose, not close to all that stuff. We had all the logistics figured out. So half the people we did that, which is how we typically did mystery. And of those 50, 49 of them rebooked another mystery right after they went on that date. So they really, really liked it. Of the, the other 50, we said, all right, we're going to just try and tell them what they're going to do the day before. Say, hey, here's what you're going to do. Here's the itinerary. And for the 50 that we told, 30 of them canceled. Because they're like, ah, oh, salsa dancing? Like, no, I don't want to do that. that well, because people, a lot of people think they have a growth mindset and they don't. They absolutely don't. And, mm-hmm. and I think the, the reality, and there's this great chart that we actually have up in our office, which is like the, the best things in life sit right outside of your comfort zone. Uh, and people don't pick those things. But yeah, one thing I would say that actually I think was an interesting mental model that I've had in my head for a while uh, as it relates to kind of what what feels mystery. And, and I think the most challenging part about this upcoming pivot that I'll talk about, which was understanding like why, like why do what about a job do you get fulfillment out of? And in the beginning of mystery, I had this saying that was like, and this is something I really believed at the time, which was like, I had this framework around, hey, really fulfilling work can be done in one of two ways. One of which is like working on solving real problems in the world, uh, climate change, uh, curing cancer, things like that. Yeah. The other one was like creating happiness. And you can even like, how do you make the people that are here the most happy they could possibly be? And you can tie this all to like existentialism. Existentialism, but uh, and I thought I was firmly in the we we hire people who want to make people happy. I thought yeah. that's what we were, yeah. Uh, and I thought that's what I got my fulfillment out of. And then night in happened, and you know I got to like hug small business owners that we saved their business, and that was just like one of the most meaningful and impactful not just for me but for the whole team of like oh my god like what we're doing matters and it matters in this locality of this thing, and, and it kind of changed my the way that I thought about it a little bit. I don't have a better framework now, but what I do understand is like. What I'm trying to do in my life is understand what are the things, what's like the wedge of things that matter to me and how can I narrow that wedge over time to understanding exactly what I want to work on? Uh, Because is it, hey, I want to build something that people in Spain are going on a date night out. Will that bring me fulfillment? Or is it like, hey, I want to impact my local community? Or is it I want to create happiness or solve real pain when a business is failing? Like there's, there's all sorts of different ends to think about it. But I think the most challenging thing about the the pivot that we had to make after night in was, uh, and it's you know, I think it's generic when you zoom out. A lot of a lot of companies go through this same pivot, uh, but was moving from a consumer product to a B two B product um, because, like I mentioned at that time, this is last summer, we were like, okay, this night in thing's working, but we need to do something else. Uh, we threw a bunch of stuff at the wall, like even like, hey, if you order a takeout meal. You could add a night into it uh, with talk or some other services. We tried instant book night out where you could say, hey, take me to a COVID-friendly restaurant, click a button and go. And we were scraping and doing all that stuff. And I was like, okay, that's not going to work. There's no way we You're can scale You're so that. scrappy. I love it. Yeah, I think scrappiness is uh, one of the better, uh, one of the things we've had to learn. And I think definitely learned at Convoy, but uh, is a big, uh, big lever the team has. Um, but the, the B2B push that we learned and kind of where we started working on this pivot was that we had this uh, Amazon VP who had spent like four and a half hours buying nights in for his team, uh, like one by one. And we had like this video of him doing it for four hours, which was like ridiculous. And that gave us like the, oh, like, you know, maybe there's a there, there, that whole thing. Uh, but took a jobs to be done approach to thinking through why he was doing that. And, you know, I think, you know, realized what's pretty obvious now. I, I think then it was maybe a little less so, which was, you know, remote work came with all sorts of benefits, productivity, work-life balance, hiring remotely, uh, all sorts of things, but came at a pretty serious cost. And that cost was team cohesion, employee motivation. And now we're seeing the, you know, the biggest retention swap in history, especially oh, yeah. in tech. Yeah, it's good um, and bad for recruiting. <laughs> exactly. I, I can imagine. I can imagine so. Uh, but then we kind of said like, all right, well, what what are we really good at? If that's a space that we want to think about operating and we think that's a big opportunity. Uh, and the reality was virtual events, which uh, we were pretty sorry. Of. We, we were not excited about in the beginning because it was like, oh, like, I don't know if you've done virtual events, but they suck. They're not good. We, did, we did one with you guys. We did the, um, the uh, what's it called, where you're trying to leave the room? Um, oh, escape room. We I liked have a it. Personal, oh, okay. Yeah, I have a personal bone to pick with escape rooms. I think it's one of those ones that we have to offer. 
because people are looking for it. My but... team liked it. I couldn't make it that night, but they I got good feedback. Okay. Okay. Love to hear that. I think we've done a lot of work to make, help level up some of those experiences mm -hmm. to be quality. I think the reality is like you had a bunch of people that had never done virtual experiences trying to do them. Uh, and because of that, there's not a lot of quality there. Yeah. Um, so we spent the better part of three months trying to build that and, you know, could we launch something that mattered? And I think, you know, yeah, building something from scratch is hard. Yeah. Doing all that's hard. But what, what's harder is figuring out the internal motivation, you know, for myself and then for the team. For myself, it was hard. Like I was like, it, I built mystery because I wanted to bring people together. I thought connecting people with technology. Right, your really virtual is the exact opposite. And, and well, virtual, it was like, it was B2B. That was the big thing. It was like, hey, consumer business versus a B2B business. Uh, and, you know, like I, sure, I can prep myself up and say certain things to the team and, you know, be excited and I can force myself through that. But in, internally, I was having this huge conflict, which was like, can I work on a B2B business for years? Am I going to be okay with that? Uh, am I going to get the same motivation intrinsically? Um, and, and it was actually took a, a mentor of mine, and I think you know him as well, Forrest Key, who's an incredible. I didn't incredible know he was a mentor of yours. Yeah, yeah, he's an investor in mystery. Uh, very, very luckily for us. I uh, love Forrest. He was on the podcast. Oh, awesome! Yeah, and that's uh, a good one. You got to listen to that I, one. He's amazing. You know, I'm not actually sure he knows that he had this profound of an impact on me for saying this. So, Forrest, if you're listening, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, but. Uh, you know, I remember telling him about this conflict that I had. It was like, can I get motivated about B2B? How do I do this? And he was like, Shane, you're an idiot. <laughs> it's like, you're doing the exact same thing, at, but you get to do it much faster and at a bigger scale. <laughs> and, and you're doing it in a part of life that's more important for people than it was before. Like date nights, yeah, they matter. But like now you're people like losing their connection with work. <laughs> it's like, I'm pretty sure that matters more. Uh, and, in, you know, I wanted to believe it. And I think part of me like that helped me get like the slap in the face I needed to think like, well, okay, it really is a very similar thing. I'm bringing people together through experiences and you know, how did we figure that out? But it took really creating magical experiences for me to be bought in. And I think I can see it in the team too. You know, when we launched our experiences were that we had taken something bad and made them good, but not mm -hmm. yet great. Yeah. And it was like, it was working and the momentum was fun because we had over 100 companies sign up in the first month alone. Oh my God, really? Tons of momentum. And we so what's anything. the business model there? When this, when you say sign up, is it like they're on a subscription model or is it like we just do events and pay pay as you play? Yeah, so we're, we've moved since to subscription modeling and, and things like that. In the beginning, we had no idea how B2B works, what it should look like, all the terms and everything like that. We just said, hey, we do virtual events. Come, come and book them. And what 100 companies came EAs, event managers, VPs came and said, I want to do an event with, with you guys and booked an event. Uh, and that's what we kind of now call transactional revenue. Uh, but now we've learned like, oh, like the real problem isn't, you know, virtual events and creating amazing ones of those, which is like, that's a feature of it. But the real problem is like team bonding. So how do we think about a solution that really works long-term there? Uh, and if you try and break that out and try and understand it, there's a few major verticals, which is like, you know, one, EAs spend in a crazy amount of time just pulling off these events. Uh, and I think the idea for mystery is to make EAs superheroes, not to replace them. Uh, but from that end, like imagine I'm an EA trying to pull off an events, you know, without mystery, it was like, okay, well, like if I'm an EA, you know, maybe my VP is like, Hey, we need to do an event. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Google. I'm going to say like, Hey, like good team event ideas. I'll ask my other friends that are EAs that have done other things. Maybe I'll find and Maybe like the idea is like a paint and sip. Right? So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll do, I want to do a paint and sip. So now I'm going to go to Google. I go to Google. I find like a paint and sip provider in the city. And I call them. I'm like, hey, I'm with Amazon. We'd love to do a team event. And they're like, oh, great. Yeah, we're doing virtual paint and sips. That's great. Uh, when can you do it? And they're like, oh, next Thursday. Maybe the time works. Maybe it doesn't. There's no visibility there. But great. Imagine we book this paint and sip provider. One, like, yeah, it doesn't really know the quality bar. But hopefully it's good because it's a local company. Two, the paint and sip provider now says, okay, cool. Like, I can't send the paint materials to anyone because I don't know their addresses or anything like that. But then even just like for an EA to go and get the addresses for everyone, it's like, oh, they go to HR, hey, can I have everyone's address? And they're like, absolutely not. You can't, you can ask. So then they go to everyone and everyone's moving or moving to different places because remote work's different. Let's imagine finally I get all the boxes to everybody, right? Everyone has their box of paint materials and they're all ready to paint. There's no wine included because shipping wine is a pain in the ass that no EA is going to figure out on their own. But now we hop on. Uh, most of the time, the providers that are out there throwing these experiences are not tech savvy. They haven't figured, they don't have like a Zoom setup. They don't have an understanding of breakout rooms and how to do it perfectly. They've gotten better over time, but still not a lot of training there. Uh, and you, you, know, you all hop on. 
And uh, the instructor really no, doesn't know a lot about like what the event's for, who's on the event, anything like we that. We did a paint and sip, actually. It's so funny you're bringing this up. And it was some woman in Texas. But undoubtedly, the, the experience starts with, I just want to take a minute and say thank you to everyone who took this time to really connect. I think, you know, in, in challenging times like this, we just want to be really intentional. And, you know, it's like all this like... Uh, okay, yeah, I know, like, it's COVID, like, things are hard, but, like, you just want to have fun. Like, the purpose of doing that event is, like, you want to have a good time meeting with your team. Uh, and, like, the instructors just aren't trained for that. There's no there's no understanding how to do right. that. Then, the, you know, the event happens. You paint something. It's fine. It's good. You know, and that's it. Like, you get a couple thumbs up at the end, and the A is like, great, event done. Have to do another one in a month, but we'll figure it out. Uh, and that was a huge, interesting problem space because not only did the A have to spend much time, but the quality wasn't good enough. Uh, there's no price transparency at all, which is a whole different problem. But three, like there was no measurement. And if you look at how people spend morale budgets, there's never been an interesting long-term big business built around a morale budget because up until now, it's never been stable. It's always been like, oh, depending on the market, oh, there's all these other things because companies always had office culture to fall back on. Well, now the average company is reducing their office footprint by 50% which is crazy. Those are the biggest companies in the world are doing that. What, what happens when you do that? Even in a flex world where, you know, there's a bunch of stats out there, the, the ones that we know right now are like 30% of company, uh, tech companies are going to be remote fully. Uh, the remainder will be flex with the average flex being two, two days a week in office. But what happens when you do that? Well, you don't have office culture. You don't let people right. meet each other. And you're disjointed because there's people in, there's people out. Exactly. So, so yeah, you just reduce your fixed costs there. But where does that fixed cost go? It goes to team connectedness. It goes to the morale. The morale budget all of a sudden is more stable. I love it. I love it. That's such a a good point. Now that there's this morale budget, and one, like people don't know how to spend it with quality. So we can build the quality. We can make sure that, hey, if you're going to do a team event of any kind, it's going to be great. And we actually guarantee it. Uh, That's something we're hopefully, by the time this comes out, I think we'll have rolled that out. But uh, we're guaranteeing experiences on our platform now. So we guarantee the experience is going to be great. But even more than that, we're going to measure it. So if the design team does an event with the growth team because, hey, I want these teams to work better together, at their next event, at their next employee reward, whatever it might be, we'll pop a question that says, hey, is working with the design team been easier, harder, or the same? We'll map intentions to actually outputs and saying, did this work? It's like engagement software with context. Uh, And that's a piece that has never been brought to this space because no one has ever been able to build a sustainable business against a unreliable budget. Uh, so that's what we're doing now. Uh, we're, and, is, and is there, um, I feel like there was also merchandise or like some sort of. Yeah. So we, we took our night in project, night in uh, pivot to scale, uh, which was basically corporate gifting. Yeah. Uh, where it's, it's physical goods. I think the ends of which, you know, every startup needs focus. Uh, I've, you know, in my experiences at both Convoy and Porch, I think Porch has found focus now, but when I was there, they weren't very focused. Uh, and they pay the price for it. And Convoy, on the other hand, was immensely focused. Laser focused, yeah. All of their business. And there's real power in focus. From the ends of which I think we'll be a physical goods distributor long term, no. But the reality is that great virtual events require physical goods. Yeah. So the, they might just do. go hand in hand, but the main business is the virtual events. And then eventually, as things get back to real life, we're not in the business. We're not a virtual events company. We're not a date night company. We're not a corporate gifting company. Uh, We consider ourselves a magical experiences platform, which means we have all of these amazing small businesses that we work with. And the question is, how do we build amazing experiences around these people? Uh, And for B2B, that means, hey, right now it's virtual events and corporate gifting, these physical goods. Uh, But as the world opens back up, we're going to have IRL team events, just like we used to do pre-COVID. We'll have employee rewards that are actually meaningful. Uh, Today, employee rewards are gift cards and you know things like that where it's like the same reason you don't give your significant other a gift card for the birthday <laughs> the same reason you shouldn't give your employee a gift card it's meaningless i feel nothing about it uh the, the best thing and especially as millennials enter the you know mass amount of employee uh employees that are at a company yeah uh, they're the majority they want experiences yeah so think about employee rewards in an experiential sense with our old product it'll come back um and, and i think over time it's just you know our focus is b2b now but so much of what we used to do, we have a consumer product that works for B2B. And tell me, is- tell me a little bit more about your own culture and also what your recruiting strategy is in order to create, um, you know, stickiness, diversity, all the things yeah. that yeah, are think- linked with kind of ROI. 
Yeah, it's funny. I'm kind of like a, I'm a big reader and I try and go really, really deep on topics and try and understand it before I make any decisions. And then I always find that like any advice worth hearing, you have to learn yourself. <laughs> I think it's a great phrase. Um, but like with diversity, for example, or, or sorry, let, I mean, yeah, let's think about diversity uh, or even culture, cultural values, anything of that nature. I think in the beginning, you know, I heard two schools of thought. I think if you're running a company, you always hear these mad, like hilarious differing opinions. They're always on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you hear, hey, if and this is around culture, if you don't define the culture in the beginning, it's going to define itself and you're not going to like the result. I've heard that so much. You've heard that so much. On the other end, it's like, hey, if you define a culture too early, it's going to feel inauthentic and it won't take hold. So that discussion of like, okay, if those are the two realities, like where do you play inside of that? Uh, I think well, my co-writer actually had a beautiful phrase once, which was like, culture is not about finding uh, people who are like you. It's about finding harmony with people, uh, different voices that are able to sing together in harmony. Yeah. I think it's like a you know, beautiful, fluffy thing to say, but I think it does hold true in a lot of ways. Yeah. Where in the beginning, it wasn't about you know, finding the person I'd sit at a bar with. I think that's like the most overused cultural thing. It was, it was finding people whose you know, background and thought and the way that they approach problems was different than yours and you know, was one that you found an interesting and intriguing. Yeah, so the diversity of thought. I have had um, the new way of speaking about culture as far as recruiting goes, not saying culture fit, but culture add, like what you're talking about. Like who's Yeah, gonna, oh, that's interesting. I didn't even know that. Let's not talk about culture fit. Let's talk about who's going to add to the culture. Who's going to be like that person that you're like, we can't live without them because they've just added so much. Yeah, that's super interesting. And what's, yeah. your, what's your recruiting strategy been? How many employees do you have now and where are you going? Yeah, so we uh, just recently started going on kind of a hiring spree. So we uh, we've really found fit with with the B two B product. We're growing faster than we can maintain, uh, and we're growing the team pretty aggressively right now. I think we're uh, we're about we were call it fourteen a month ago, and I think coming into end of this month we'll be about twenty or twenty two, like twenty two, I guess. Um, and uh, we're going to continue to grow the team pretty quickly after that. Uh, we're Right before our Series A, I think we'll, we'll raise that. We don't actually need the cash at all right now. We're, we're doing pretty well from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think with, you know, opportunistically, we can move a lot faster. Yeah. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll raise some more money here pretty soon. But in the meantime, we're not slowing down on hiring. Uh, I'm super so psyched for you. And how do you feel successful? Or like, when will you, is, there a, is there a North Star where you're like, okay, now I feel successful. And, and will that be like X yeah. amount of companies or we've, IPO'd or I've got, you know, employees that are bringing joy. Like, how do you measure that? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's an interesting end of, you know, I, the whole, like, no one ever feels successful and they always want more is a, <laughs> a paradigm that I've realized is, you know, very true. Uh, I think there's so much of like, people always worry about the future, trying to think, what can I do now that will make me happy down the line? And you're always setting that goalpost further and further and further. Uh, a long time ago, I kind of had this realization that I just want to focus on being happy now. And if I'm happy now and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, th good things will happen. Uh, and it's almost uh, an, an end of being optimistic that as long as you are prioritizing your own personal happiness now and making sure that what you're doing you know, is in some end living in the moment, it's probably too far of a stretch, but uh, I think it'll work out. Well, that, that, <laughs> um, is, that is the ultimate goal. And I'm sure your meditating will help you with that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah living sure. in the moment, being present, trying to, but I mean, given that you are building a company that's growing at such a fast clip, it's also, you know, balancing that with like your task list and you're like, oh my God, yeah. I got so much to do and I want to see my friends and I want to, I want to go on my own dates or whatever well, it is. Startups are all about trade-offs, right? You got to know what you can and can't do. I think COVID actually made being a founder easier in many ways. Because all the, you get to, it's kind of a, for everyone, a reprioritization of relationships. Mm, yeah, totally. Uh, using the ones that mattered. Yeah. Uh, and that made life for a founder a lot easier. Because <laughs> yeah. like all those casual relationships that you were keeping going. Yeah, it's just noise at this point. Them, it was just noise, right? Yeah. And so how are you spending your free time outside of work? Uh, outside of work, I'm a huge foodie. Uh, so I eat out a lot <laughs> of different restaurants and things like that. I spend a lot of time cooking. Um, as a very random side note, uh, or COVID and even before I was making a lot of pesto, as random as that sounds. Uh, so I'm actually writing a little cookbook called The Pursuit of Pesto, which has been a fun little side project. In your project. abundant spare time. Well, we have a ton of uh, basil if you need some. 
Ooh, I love that. Like, like literally. I've been making a lot of pesto and doing that. But uh, outside of that, just spending time with friends and family and things like that. Yeah, that's so fun. And so is there anything aside from your pesto making that we would be surprised to learn about you? I'm a little surprised by the pesto, but I love it. <laughs> anything outside <laughs> of that you would be surprised? Probably features that I don't think are surprising about myself that would be surprising to others. But uh, the, I guess the funny thing I'll say is uh, from a work-life balance perspective, we just moved into a, a small office here in, uh, in, um, in Fremont. Uh, because I, I, and I think in the whole remote or not remote thing, uh, I can talk about for a long time. I think small teams who are building things really quick need a space to Absolutely. work. You got to collaborate. You got to collaborate yeah. on things. So we have a small space and I, uh, the funny joke I'd say is I just moved in, uh, upstairs. So I live right above our office. And oh, I'm that's so dangerous, trip. dude. No, you're... So I, everyone's been saying exactly what you just said. And what I'd say to you is remote work is real. And I have more separation than any remote worker. I have a whole floor between me and my workspace. That's, that is uh, actually a good point. Because I mean, I'm I'm working right now in my dining room. So you're <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But in the, when the real world comes back and it's like, oh my God, I need to get to the office. There's like ah, almost nothing, know, nothing think... keeping you from it. And so... This is a good question for you because of your mystery uh, initial business model. Like, what's the perfect date for you? Are you? Do you have a girlfriend? I do, yeah. And so plan a date for Saturday, a day date. What would you want to do? Oh, man. So I think, one, the perfect date for me is one that I don't plan. Uh, somebody, I think you truly, if one party knows what's going to happen, I think what we found was the magic of mystery was that neither party knew what was coming next. Mm. And because of that, it was a net new experience. So what would my planning of your date look like then? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to trick you back. Uh, like, uh, for me, uh, it would be a, a, starting with kind of a, a food experience. It would be a tasting menu of some kind. Um, there's a few restaurants in Seattle that I really, really love. But uh, Like which ones? I think the one that I haven't gone to since COVID started, so I'll use that one, is Homer. So that Homer, I think Homer and a couple others are like the best aesthetic of a restaurant. They get the real estate right, like the feeling, the vibe when you walk mm. in. Everything about the way that they present themselves is really, really perfect. And the food is obviously amazing. Uh, and they have really incredible hospitality as well. Soli, who works there, is just a remarkable human. Um, but probably somewhere like that where I can go through like a longer kind of dining experience. And then something where I get to actually do something more interactive and learn something. Like the favorite mysteries that I've been on in Seattle, and I've been on all of them, uh, were things like pottery lessons, uh, were things like iron forging. And what's this iron thing? Iron what? Iron forging. There's this. Uh, there's this iron forge in Soto uh, called the Lawless Forge with this guy named Max. Uh, and it is just a remarkably amazing experience. You take this piece of metal and either make it into a horseshoe or a bottle opener or chopsticks, uh, and you get to like the coolest part about it. One is like like any great experience uh, is all about kind of throwing expectations out the window. Mm -hmm. Like what does that mean? So like the idea that you could make a horseshoe out of this metal bar is like what? That's ridiculous. Uh, but then you also get to see somebody that's just immensely skillful. Yeah. Where like the max to create what's, what takes the class three hours <laughs> to make. And there's a shorter option, sure. But like the full horseshoe takes three hours to make for, for the class. It takes max maybe four or five minutes. Oh, that's amazing. And so, just, you're, so you're oh making something. And then, and then what are you doing on your date? Yeah, I'll tell you. What, I'll walk you through my favorite date night we ever planned in Seattle. Uh, the favorite kind of theme that we had, which was, uh, was a date that started in the ID. Uh, which is, if, for those that live in Seattle, I think you'll know, is like not the place you'd think you'd be going on a date night that, through a mystery service. So immediately you're taking these expectations and throwing them out the window. Uh, and you went to this restaurant called Sukoshimbo, which I don't know if you've been, but is, I think, in my opinion, the best sushi in Seattle. Uh, but there's no sign on the door. You kind of walk through this alley. It feels a little like, oh, what am I doing? Uh, you walk in and you, know, you, get, uh, you get seated at the chef's table. You get to see like a master sushi chef making an incredible meal, which is amazing. And then the next stop is at this place called Sake Nome, which is in Pioneer Square, right outside of the ID. Um, and you walk into in this amazing sake tasting uh, with an instructor who tells you that, you know, he started Sake Nome because his great, great grandparents uh, had, uh, made sake and his grandparents made sake and his parents made sake or his grandparents made sake and his parents, they couldn't mm -hmm. because they immigrated to America and they did everything to make, uh, to build him up so that he could do something. And that's why he started Sake Nome. It's like this impactful, like, inspirational like cultural feeling it's just amazing and the sake is really great and then from there you went to the a place that's actually no longer around it's called the dynasty room 
Uh, it was in the floor of uh, the old Four Seasons Hotel, Four Seasons Hotel in the in the ID, and it was like this beautiful statement piece of like gentrification within the ID and how like there was this bright light uh, that lived inside this area that was just getting changed and the culture was being lost. And the cool thing, I think, when you plan nights out, the, the hero's journey and the psychology around experiences is so important. But the point being is like each one of those stops by themselves was like fine. It was, it was good. It was a great experience. But together, they told this story in Seattle that I think was just really, really compelling and impactful. I would definitely want to go on that date night. I actually wrote, yeah. wrote a couple of these things down. It was a very, very fun date night. Um, for me, just food, food and some type of experience where I get to talk to people and meet people. Yeah. My ultimate question for you is what fuels you? Name of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, what fuels me is, uh, in one word, I'd say connection, uh, human connection. But I think so much, and, and you know, you can tell all these beautiful narratives about life and tie everything up in a really beautiful way. Uh, but I think pushing people outside of their comfort zone is what brings people to a place where they can connect with people. And I think that's what mystery does. And uh, getting to do that with people who also get the same joy every day is the thing that I wake up for. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.